Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, O'Reilly Media's Max Slocum talks with Scout Brody, Executive Director of Simply Secure. They discuss building systems that help humans, designing better tools through user studies, and balancing the demands of shipping software with security. Enjoy the show. Why did you gravitate towards security? Well, um, when I was an undergraduate, uh, I really enjoyed coding. But I found that sitting in front of a computer all day, every day was not quite fulfilling for me. Um, So I was also very interested in psychology and linguistics and all sort of social sciences. And I found that security is a nice sort of interdisciplinary mix because it studies the the problems at the intersection of technology and human problems as well. So it got you out from in back of the uh, computer monitor and out out there? Yeah, I mean, I think that I was out there anyway. Um, I was a computer science French double major. Um, so I was always very interested in people. And the aspect of the French language that I really enjoyed was actually the cultural aspect. Um, and so for me, being able to work in security offers me the opportunity not just to think about technical problems and their technical aspect, but as security problems as the intersection of uh, society and technology at the same time. Is that a common approach to security? Do you feel like a lot of people have that same perspective? I don't think so, actually. I think that a lot of people tend to take the human components, as I like to call them, for granted. Um, We tend to think of security as a technical problem and the user is the impediment to our perfect solution. Um, And I think that that's part of, you know, what I try to bring to the community is the human perspective um, and trying to think about human beings as the real end of the system, the real goal of the system. Because ultimately, if we aren't building systems that are meeting the needs of the humans, why are we building systems at all? That's a fair point. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. So um, kind of related to that, the the write-up for your session here at the O'Reilly Security Conference, it posed an interesting question. It's, is the security community today meeting the needs of a global audience or simply building tools and features for itself. What's your take on that? I think that it's very easy as a member of the security community to get lost in a bit of a bubble. Um, I think that we go to these conferences where we talk to other security people, we listen to talks about the greatest tools, we have you know wars, uh, conversational wars online about different types of encryption, and it's very easy to forget that the people that are actually using these tools may not have the same needs that we as security professionals do. You know, we as security professionals have a certain perspective on the problem. Uh, we have a certain threat model. We understand the actors that are participating in in the various scenarios that we're dealing with. But people in the everyday don't necessarily have that same perspective. And I think that it's really important for us to get out and actually talk to people and actually engage with users and understand what their concerns are and what their threat models are, because it helps us understand how to build tools that meet their needs and also ideally help them figure out how to help them appreciate the things that we're trying to offer them. What are the first steps that security developers need to take if they want to build security that actually meets users' needs? The number one uh, step that a person in the security field needs to take is they need to go and actually talk to their users. They need to talk to people outside of their cubicle, outside of their office, outside of their friend group. They need to go do scrappy user studies. Um, That's something that my organization tries to specialize in is helping developers and technical people actually get out and talk to people. There are lots of ways to do it. It doesn't have to be a big formal process. Um, when I was a product manager in a big in a big tech company, I used to go do what we called cafe studies. 
Um, and I would go and I would try and recruit not the necess- necessarily the people that worked at the organization, but the guests that they would bring into the cafe because they were less likely to be technologists and sort of, you know, have a paper prototype, you know, just sort of a printout of, you know, the interface that you're trying to build or have, you know, a small set of questions sort of trying to prove your hypotheses about your threat model that you're trying to solve for and actually talk to the people and ask their questions. Um, give them a candy bar, give them some cookies. Um, It doesn't have to be a formal process, but that opportunity to really get inside the minds of people that don't already use your tool or don't already use your system is really important. So even a paper prototype would work? Even a paper prototypes are one of the best tools out there. It's actually a very powerful tool used by user experience, professional user experience researchers. So the best way to do it is actually to come up with um, not a a sort of pixel perfect Mm -hmm. mock-up because people, there's a sort of human tendency when you see a pixel perfect mock-up, you want to not necessarily criticize it to the fullest degree that you might otherwise, because you're concerned about hurting the person's feeling, because obviously they've gone to a great degree of trouble to make this sure. pixel-perfect <laughs> mock-up. So it's nice. There's actually a tool called Balsamic, which is designed specifically for making sort of sketchy mock-ups. Um, so if you're uh, you know, not a, a professional designer, it's okay. You don't have to have something pretty, but sort of have all the buttons in the right place and sort of the text that you're going to try and use. And, you know, print it out on a, on a piece of paper and bring it to the person and say, you know, tell me about what this tool does. Or, you know, I'm building a new tool and I'm trying to understand if people will get what it's for. Or I'm trying to build a new tool and I'm trying to understand if people will know where to start. Mm-hmm. You know, tell, and just sort of put it in front of them and, and listen to what they say. Another very powerful tool when you're talking to users is called a cognitive walkthrough. And it's where you ask people, you can do it either with a paper prototype or with an actual screen, um, you know, the, a mock-up or, or even the working tool, um, you ask them to tell you what they're thinking as they're thinking it. Um, so if you're going to uh, do a cognitive walkthrough for an encryption program, you might say, okay, please tell me, you know, I'd like you to encrypt this email message. Tell me what you're doing as you're doing it and all of the thoughts that occur to you. So you might hear someone say, oh, wow, okay, so I'm going to encrypt. Uh, I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, I'm going to start by pushing this button because that looks good. That's green. I'm going to push that. And right. so you can really hear the thought process that people are going through. Um, it's also really important, and this is the biggest uh, challenge that I think many times technical people have when they're talking to users. You can't, when you're when you're listening to users, you really have to listen. You can't try to educate them. You can't step in and say, no, 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 let me drive, let me drive. You've right. got to sit back and, and let them do their thing and really listen to what they have to say. Um, it can be useful if you can get the user's consent, if you're in a bit more of a formal user study context, to videotape not necessarily the person, but the screen and see what they're doing, because then you can play it for your colleagues. Um, this is one of the most convincing ways uh, that you can make a case about your tool having problems or your tool needing improvement through user studies is by just videotaping people trying to use it and all of the challenges that they experience. That's related to a follow-up I wanted to ask you there. How do you report back on that and convince people internally that things actually need to change? Yeah, so a video is very, very helpful. Um, taking, you know, if you can have data, I mean, engineers and technical people love quantitative data. Part of the challenge of this space is that the work that you do that often gives you the most interesting insights is not necessarily quantitative. It's what mm-hmm. we call qualitative. Um, it's the sort of more nuanced, more hard to describe, you know, not numbers-based insights that you can get from other human beings. So sometimes coming away with quotes 
you know,、mm. specific phrases. So maybe you can take either notes or you can do a video recording and just listen to the things that people say about their perceptions of the world. That can be very helpful.、Um, certainly, you know, depending on the context that you're working in, you can do you know instrumentation and you know analytics on your tool. You can look at how your users are using in real time through A/B testing, things like that. Depending on the nature of your tool, that can be potentially problematic if you're dealing with particularly sensitive data. People might not want you to see what they are doing with your tool, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why user studies can be better. Personally, I tend to advocate more the qualitative aspect. So I think that the videos, the quotes, the、uh, sort of more insights-driven bits of the, the interview can be very helpful. How much time should be dedicated for these types of studies? That's hard to say.、Um, it depends on the the size of the team. It depends on the state of the project. I think that every project that is shipped should have some user study component.、Um, I think that if you are not spending any time talking to your actual users, then it's clear that you're sort of building in the dark.、Mm-hmm. Um, I think that、uh, so it's hard to say exactly how much time. Shifting gears a little bit, but related to what we were talking about, how do you feel that organizations can balance security with the need for speed? It's tricky.、Um, I think that just like I mean, so so I like to think of security as a potential for technical debt.、Um, mm. You know, if you are building a piece of software and you don't have any testing built in, sure, you can probably build a piece of software and actually get something out the door that you know ships and works, but it's not necessarily going to stand up on two legs for very long. And so I think that security, you know. You need to build it into your process from the beginning. You need to have your, you know, not just one person that's responsible for security on the team. You need to have all members of the team trained to a certain degree in security. You need to identify goals, your security goals. So we need to have,、uh, you know, this type of evaluation done. We need to have this built into our, you know, shipping checklist. So I guess, you know, I tend to think of software not necessarily as a technical product. I mean, again, given my sort of human orientation, software is a process, not a product. And so, what are the human process? Processes that you can build in to make sure that the security goals are met.、Um, to that end, thinking about your developers and thinking about the people that are trying to get your software out the door as human beings. What are the psychological components that you, as an engineering manager or a security advocate within your organization, can instrument to try and incentivize them to focus on security?、Um, I mean, I hate to use the phrase because it's you know really、uh, a bit trite at this point, but gamification. Like, are there ways that you can gamify security? Are there ways That you can、uh, incentivize members of your team to participate in red team exercises with you and make it again part of the daily life, not just something special that happens, but something that occurs all the time. Right. It would seem would have to be part of the fabric of what you're doing, as opposed、yeah. to something that's either you know a, a special event or bolted on that just doesn't seem to work right, very right. effectively. No, it's a continuous effort, which makes it hard. I mean, it's challenging, but just like any kind of technical debt, if you don't chip away at it little bit by little bit over time, it'll grow until it's a mountain. So, is it really more of a cultural change than a technical change? I think it's much more a cultural change than a technical change. What do you feel is the single biggest security issue that we're facing right now? So the problem that I'm really fascinated by right now is the Internet of Things,、mm-hmm. uh, and I know it's very trendy,、um, but I think that it really magnifies all of the security problems that we've had before to an astonishing degree. Because you know we've talked about you know we've seen problems with all sorts of you know vulnerabilities and all sorts of malicious software and and whatnot、uh, on computers and mobile devices, and 
And now we're talking about growing that exponentially to, you know, devices, you know, light bulbs, every little last thing in the home um, or in the industrial context. And that's very scary. Um, I think particularly when we look at the Internet of Things for automated systems in factories, in, again, more industrial contexts, I think that the ramifications of having a piece of machinery compromised mm. um, are much greater than having a home PC compromised. Do you feel like that's where the solution is going to lie to this is targeting the biggest targets? I don't think so. Um, and I hate to be a bit of a broken record, but again, I think that it's, you know, we need to look at the human systems. We need to look at the processes. Um, I hate to say that it's a policy problem, but I do think that we need to see more partnership between the technologists and the policy people in this space to find ways to hold manufacturers accountable for uh, the quality of the security of their devices. Um, I think that we need to make sure that uh, we are educating our young engineers to think not just about shipping a piece of software, Software, but shipping an updatable piece of software. A phrase that gets thrown around in Washington, D.C. a fair amount right now is cryptographic agility. You know, how agile are these devices that we are shipping? Is it acceptable to ship a device and then just sort of say, well, it's shipped and it's out the door? Mm. Or, you know, do we have the expectation as a community that every device that gets shipped has the capability to receive minimal software updates for security purposes? How do you see IoT security evolving over the short term, like next two years or so? I think it's still a bit of a free-for-all. Mm. I think that, you know, we have the the sort of old curmudgeons who are saying, this is just like what everything that we've ever had before, you know, there's nothing different here. But then we also have all of these new startups that are shipping stuff and not even thinking and, and listening to, to sort of looking back at, at what's gone before. I don't know. I think it's going to be a wild ride. Uh, last question for you. What people or projects are you following these days? Um, so a couple of projects and people that I'm very interested in uh, right now. One in the sort of internet freedom space is the Guardian Project. They are a small shop that works on open source projects for people who have particular security needs. Uh, they're doing super good work, um, and it's really worth checking them out. Another person that I think, or a lab, an organization that I think is really great is uh, Angela Sasa's group at University College London. Angela is actually one of my organization's advisors, um, but she does great work at the intersection of security and human systems. Great. Well, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash and Scout is at S-C-O-U-T-T-L-E. You can subscribe to the Security Podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.